We are in Champions League, man. That was my name. Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernane. This is number 15 in our culture podcast brought to you by World Strides Excel. World Strides Excel, the industry leader in international soccer tours with over 15 years experience delivering tours for a wide range of clientele. You pick the country or countries and their experts will customize a trip that includes competitive matches, training sessions, tickets to pro games, sightseeing and much more. They also offer quality level of support including financial assistance, liability coverage, flights and hassle-free travel. So our guest today is Gary Stevens. Gary's a former player with Brighton, Spurs and Portsmouth. He was also an England international and part of the 1986 World Cup squad. He's a pro-licensed coach. He's worked at the professional leagues in England, Gibraltar, Ireland, and then recently in Thailand, where he is now based. So really enjoy this conversation. We talk about his playing ex- experience under Sir Bobby Robson, adapting his style and philosophy whenever he has gone to different cultures. And then we talk about mental health and coaching. How should we be working on it? How should we be approaching it? in a world that you're now exposed to so much negativity. So it's a subject that I think we need to cover a little bit more. I would like to go into a little bit more detail on this subject because I think if you're a coach today, you definitely need to know how to manage this, not just the stress and the pressure, but also the negativity that goes along with the position. So Gary's got some great views on this, different class with his honesty, his humility, and then a little bit of vulnerability as well. So really appreciated that. As always, love to hear your thoughts on Twitter, at Gary Kernin, and then I've started to do a little bit more on Instagram as well, so at Gary Kernin there too. A uh, little note, if you're heading into the convention in Chicago in January, please stop by the first Modern Soccer Coach Roadshow with Dan Abrams. We're going to do a Thursday night, January 10th at 8.30, get some special guests in, which we will be releasing in the next couple of weeks. We're going to do some insight from them, We'll also do some discussions, debates, a little bit of Q&A and involve the crowd as much as possible. So really, really excited. Uh, Dan is different class, as everyone well knows. So tickets are available on the Modern Soccer Coach Twitter page at MSC Education. The links are there. So we'd love to see all the coaches stop by. Hopefully you can make it. It should be a great event. Let me know what you think. Here's Gary. Enjoy. Gary, thanks so much for joining me uh, tonight, your time for the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Really excited to have you on. Thank you very much. Pleasure to uh, to have a chat with you and hopefully um, we can entertain and inform your listeners. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. We always start these culture podcasts off with the, the great philosophy question. Would you mind sharing yours? Well, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. Um, I think what I would say is that it depends to a large extent on what level you're working at. Um, but for me, to get the best out of anybody, um, be that youngsters at the real grassroots level, be that um, you know competitive school kids, be that young professionals, senior professionals, for me, they have to enjoy it. So everything I do around football is based on those that I'm working with have to enjoy it. So simple. It's well, funny that because well, you, you expect people who have played at the highest level to have this complex, but it almost comes back to simplicity. Well, yes, I, I think it is. And, you know, the, the truth is that um, unless you enjoy it, unless the people involved enjoy it, in my opinion, you won't get the best out of them. So... You know, I started that off by saying it does depend what level you're working at. And of course, it is very, very much about fun and games at grassroots level. So they enjoy it. But when you get to, for example, the other end of the spectrum, 
it is still about developing and improving players, but it's stretching them and building them towards becoming successful both as individual players and also as a team or within their team. Um, but, you know, to do that, in my opinion, they have to enjoy it wherever they are on that scale. This this is my favourite question personally, is is what's, what's the biggest impact on your philosophy? Is it your personality, your playing experience, that UEFA Pro licence, the coach in different countries? What's impacted it the most? I think it's um, the experiences that I've had in the last few years of coaching in different parts of the world, in all honesty. Um, I think I'm a very, very different coach now to the one I was when I became part of the academy at Charlton Athletic Football Club as assistant academy director at around about the, the end of last century, beginning of this century, so 1999, 2000, around about then, um, because all I had known was basically working with British coaches um, in England. And since then, I've, I've traveled the world a little bit and I've coached in different regions and different areas and different levels. Um, and, and I think it's, it's changed me as a person. And as I've changed as a person, my philosophy has changed as well. I didn't know this when I was doing some research on you. You started an insurance policy for career-ended injuries because you felt that they were grossly underinsured through your experience. Well, yes, you're exactly right. Great research. Well played. Um, (laughs) I think it's always difficult when you retire from football as a professional footballer. And I retired at a very young age prematurely. I played my last game. I was still 28. I got my last pay packet out of the game as a player, a contracted player when I was 29. What do you do? And I've had lots of different interests since I've retired. Um, But one thing is for sure, when I lost my career, I was grossly underinsured. And that was a big mistake. So if, for example, you've got 10 years ahead of you as a player, and in that 10 years you think you can earn 25 units of money, then if your career ends tomorrow, arguably you risk losing the income of 25 units, um, which can be a huge amount of money, of course. Um, And off the back of that, um, it did lead to me working with some brokers who set up a policy. And at one stage, yes, I had um, several hundred players in England that my business insured against the loss of their career through either accident, injury or illness. Um, And we did pay out to various people um, and a lot of people. We just continue to keep their premium each year, as it were, or the insurers did. Because fortunately, they didn't lose their career. But, you know, every footballer, be them a, you know, an an amateur or a professional, you know, they are susceptible to injury. It can happen so easily. So you do have to have yourself protected. How was that? You know, it's it's very, very early, especially these days. The the playing careers are prolonged. You know, to to lose your career at that time, was, was it very, very, did you find it difficult in the transition period? Yeah, hugely difficult, I would say. Um, I would suggest it probably took me 10 years, maybe more, to, to get over it, to, uh, to move on from it a little bit. So um, a big chunk of my life, I would say, was quite difficult on the basis that, you know, I lost one of my greatest loves in life, which was being able to play football at a very, very good level. Um, you know, people have described it to me as that, you know, when it does happen to you, possibly even at the end of your career, because actually you are now too old, you do have to retire. Um, you almost have to go through a, a period of bereavement. Um, you know, and for me, it was OK. It's not quite the same as and far from losing a loved one. But I lost something that I loved. So, yeah, I would say it was a, a difficult period for me, for sure. You were released from Ipswich as an apprentice at 16 and you said that Bobby Robson called you in and and said the reasons that he was letting you go and then he said you could keep training with Ipswich and things might change and he also said that he could do all what he could and I I was really struck by that there and I thought, you know, 
how does that impact you as a person? Because football is a tough business, but here was someone who was being compassionate and empathetic. And I don't know if you were aware of that at the time. Well, what, what I would say was that I was a very, very lucky young player because from the age of 11, I started to go to Ipswich Town Football Club at Portman Road as one of the, uh, the talented local youngsters who had been picked out and spotted by them. You know, Thursday night training sessions with a guy called Charlie Woods, who was the youth team coach there at the time, who had previously played for Ipswich um, and went with Bobby Robson to a number of his managerial positions at different clubs um and Bobby Robson back in those days and we're talking you know the 1970s here um Bobby Robson was Mr Ipswich Town Football Club you know he was the manager of the club and that's what he did he managed the club from top to bottom um and he knew all the trialists who were coming in and the young school kids and their respective parents and and everything and you know I got to 16 and I'd left school and I was anticipating having spent five years at the club to get an apprenticeship as it was known in those days um, and the club made a decision that as much as anything because there were some very very good players ahead of me playing in a similar position to me people like Kevin Beatty people like uh, George Burley Terry Butcher Russell Osman etc um, that my pathway was limited so you know, Bobby didn't leave it to, you know, the youth team coach to speak to me. He called me into his office and he sat me down and spoke to me about it. And he gave me the option. He said, look, you know, we would like to keep you at the club, but we can't give you an apprenticeship. So why don't you get a job locally? Keep training with the club. Keep, keep playing with the youth team. And who knows what might happen? If you're not prepared to do that or you don't want to do that, we will do whatever we can to get you a trial at another club, he said, which won't be difficult at all because we will be recommending you. Um, the next stop for me was a league lower. It was Brighton and Hove Albion Football Club, who at the time were a league below Ipswich. Um, Alan Mullery was the manager. Alan Mullery and Bobby Robson were great mates and Funnily enough, when I went down to uh, to Brighton to start my trial, there was a couple of other lads who had been released by Ipswich as well. Um, so, you know, Bobby Robson was an amazing man in many, many ways. And did I appreciate him being so kind and showing great empathy? Well, I saw it initially as rejection. I was grossly, deeply upset by it. But I rolled my sleeves up and I decided that, I was going to go elsewhere and, and prove that I could make it. And, uh, you know, I think the, the way Bobby Robson treated me and handled me um, and the rejection, I don't think one without the other would have quite worked for me. But with both those ingredients, I had what I needed to go on and be a success elsewhere. Mm. It's such a refreshing story just on both sides because in today's football that manager doesn't extend that that offer and that footballer probably doesn't accept it? No, it's, it's a very different game. It's a very different environment these days. And, of course, players have agents and, and the agent says, well, I'll get you another club, presumably, and, and what have you. But, um, yeah, I think we have to accept that it's moved on and it's a, it's a different business. Um, and maybe I was fortunate in that I was involved at the time I was in the world of football. Staying on Bobby Robson, he picked you for the England squad and the other Gary Stevens was in the squad and you joked that he picked both of you to make sure he got the right one, which I thought was different class. Can can you talk about the charisma of Bobby Robson and, and what he was like to play for as a professional? Well, I've, I've already said that he was a wonderful man and, um, you know, yes, you're right. You know, Bobby Robson rejected me at Ipswich Football Club um, all those years ago and yes he did pick me to play for England but there was also some other coincidences before he picked me to play for England and that was having gone down to Brighton Football Club um, the, at the end of that season nothing to do with me Brighton had got promotion into the top flight and because it was a small club at the start of the second season I was playing in the youth team and the reserves and Partway through the season, suddenly there's an injury to a player called Mark Lawrenson who went on to play for Liverpool. And Alan Mullery said, Gary, you're my reserve team central defender. You're playing at the weekend. And I made my debut less than 18 months after being rejected by Ipswich at Brighton against none other than Ipswich Town. And we were still the manager there. 
Um, and later on that season, um, in those days, we only had one substitute, believe it or not. Later on that season, um, we were playing away at Ipswich. Um, I wasn't in the starting eleven. I was that one substitute. We were losing 1-0 and Alan Mullery threw me on with about 10 or 15 minutes to go. And I smashed one in the top corner. My first ever goal in top flight football. We drew 1-1 with Ipswich and Bobby was still the manager of Ipswich. So it was uh, incredible how Bobby Robson kept popping up in my career. I kept doing things in my career rather close to him. Um, and, you know, when he became the England manager, I'm not sure whether I thought I had a good chance of getting in the squad or not based on my, my history with him. But ultimately, he only ever picked players who he felt were right for England and would do a job for England and added to the blend. Um, and he saw me as as part of his England squad for a period of time, which took me to Mexico 86 to the World Cup finals. Um and how, and how I ended up getting out there was we, we had a game for England against Scotland at Wembley called the Rouse Cup at the end of the 1986 season. Um, and I was on the subs bench and uh, towards the end of the game, Peter Reid playing for England got injured and I went on for him. Then Terry Butcher split his head open. So I filled in at centre half while Terry was sorted out. And then... Um, Kenny Sanson was struggling a little bit at left back, so I sat in that position. And at the end of the game, I've been on 15 minutes, I played in three positions. And as we're walking off the pitch at Wembley, um, Bobby said to me three words, you are useful. And I knew there and then that he was going to pick me to be part of his squad in Mexico 86, which... um, which he did, and ultimately everybody will remember it for the fact that we got knocked out by Argentina and the, the hand of God goal. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, it was a fantastic experience for me and, and everybody in the squad at the time. And, you know, Bobby could, you know, change from one extreme to the other. You know, he could get very agitated at times with the, the media um, and certainly in the, in the group stages of Mexico 86, we started off very poorly and the press were on our back and it enabled us to kind of set up a bit of a siege mentality to some extent. Um, But, uh, you know, I I think everybody who either came across or worked under or played against Bobby Robson in the world of football had nothing but admiration for the man. Um, And the little bit that we started with where... You know, I, I jokingly said that Bobby picked myself, Gary Stevens, and the then Everton Gary Stevens to play in the England side because um, he wanted to make sure he got the right one. You know, Bobby was quite renowned for getting names muddled up at times. Um, and so I think that's where that one stems from. But I just say these days when people say, which one were you? I just say, well, he was the ugly one, as in the Everton chap. <laughs> The World Cup in 86, so I've watched a lot of Bobby Robson documentaries and read about him and it seems that he was under a lot of pressure at that time and at a time when football managers weren't under the scrutiny that they are today, you know, and we see them act today and we see, you know, what what kind of pressure Jose Mourinho was under and what that pressure does to you. You mentioned there that you did see him act in different ways, was you know, was did he become withdrawn or was he less bubbly or what did that look like? Well, at times, at times he was a bit angry, a bit agitated. At times, he he would um, kind of try to break away from that and be, you know, more jovial because, you know, the the manager, the head coach, you know, he he sets the atmosphere, he sets the, you know, the the tone of the camp, and you know, we'd we'd been away, or ultimately we were away a long time because we went to Colorado in America for a couple of weeks before the start of the World Cup to um, train and play at altitude on the basis of we were hoping to go a long way and end up in Mexico City in the later stages of the tournament. And, you know, then when we were in uh, Mexico itself, um, we stayed up at, at altitude and came down for some of our group games and then went back up um so you know there's a there's a hell of a lot going on and i've got to be honest the um the the team of people or the the, the support team around a, an england manager for mexico 86 was nothing like the the numbers that they have today um and you know bobby robson as the head coach 
as the manager of England, I think he had so much more to deal with um, and to look after than, than possibly head coaches do today because they have such a huge support team around them. Talking about your then your your move to Thailand, a movement outside your comfort zone. What's what's been the biggest challenge there? Has it been lifestyle, the the kind of football language, or has it been something else? Well, I think there's all sorts of challenges wherever you go in the the world as a, a football coach. But one thing I would say is that I would recommend every single coach to go and work in different countries different regions different areas if you possibly can because it just broadens you out um you know i had i hadn't actually been to asia until i came out to thailand four years ago to be head coach of army united um yes i had uh, i traveled around to lots of other parts of the world but not actually been to asia for example but you know before I came to Thailand as a coach, you know, I spent some time in Azerbaijan where I was the assistant to Tony Adams at a club called Gavala. Um, I also spent some time in the League of Ireland at Sligo Rovers, um, obviously a lot closer to England. But when this little opportunity came to go to Thailand, it was a short term contract and I, I thought it would just be a great experience. And four years later, just over four years later, I'm still here. So I think it tells you that lots of things are, are right out here for me and I like it very much. You know, obviously the temperature and the humidity um, and, you know, as a farang, as they call you, as a foreigner, a coach here as a foreigner, um, you know, you have very different ideas to what they have. But having said that, um, you know, you, you need to somehow... Well, I felt I needed to somehow change things because I watched the first three or four training sessions with the um, caretaker coach and they were out there for three hours. And and I'm going, well, you know, no wonder you play at walking pace because, you, you know, you can't keep going for that long. So one of the first things I did was I, I, I just shortened the training sessions, you know, from start to finish was never even 90 minutes. You know, sometimes it was an hour and five minutes, an hour and 10 minutes. Um, but at a tempo that was closer to how I wanted us to play on a match day. Um, so, but you can't do everything instantly. You know, you can't come in and throw all of their ideas out and install your own ideas. You have to do it bit by bit and slowly. Um, so you, you have to learn, you have to adapt, you have to be prepared to compromise for sure. Yeah, you have a great a great quote where you've said that you have to adapt yourself as much as possible without compromising your coaching beliefs while dovetailing with the culture and a, a fantastic way of of kind of putting together what coaching is, right? When you go somewhere else. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, you yeah, you you have to you know, I know what I was like as a player, for example, and uh, you know, I was playing at a club with a manager. He gets the sack and a new guy comes in. Um, and if there was too much change and upheaval, um, you know, it, it was it was almost counterproductive. So, I, you know, I think it has to be evolution rather than revolution. Um, when a when a new coach takes over a club and and I appreciate your, your kind words about that quote. You know, sounds almost too good for me, that quote. My next question was, you know, you also said if an Englishman comes to Thailand and says this is how we do things in England, then you will soon realize that it doesn't always work in Thailand. So wondering what what are those first things? What are those core beliefs that, that you do bring? Gosh, I think first and foremost, you, you know, you really have to um, assess what you've got that you're going to be working with before you can even make those decisions. But for me, you know, I've already mentioned it on this podcast, you know, the, the players have to enjoy what they're doing. Um, so again, you know, although training was, was always hard, it was structured in such a way that it was enjoyable, for sure. Um, and I spent an awful lot of time, when I, when I first came to Thailand, I was quite fortunate in that the club said that the caretaker coach would stay in charge for the next couple of weeks so that I could adjust 
myself and meet people and watch training sessions and assess players. So that gave me a a real window of opportunity to decide how, when 10, 14 days later, I was going to take over exactly how I was going to do it. And of course, I'd been able to, in that time, um, speak with various players and talk to to various kind of segments of the team as well. Um, also, the, likewise with the staff there. So, you know, I, I had a very very gentle opportunity to uh, establish myself at the club. It sounds glamorous, this lifestyle of going to a country like Thailand and, and working there at the professional level. How hard is it to manage upwards in these types of clubs because of the dynamics of owners and financial landscapes? Because, you, you know, you hear horror stories about how they're actually run. Is that a bigger challenge than the actual football side of things? I would say it's close to impossible in all honesty um and you know it's a cultural thing and you know you have to accept that you know the the clubs are predominantly owned by very wealthy individuals who many of them are involved in the football because there is another game for them to be had so maybe it's popularity because they're involved in politics or looking to go into politics for example um, and because they own the club because they put the money in and you know the, the teams only survive because of rich benefactors it's as simple as that um, yes there is advertising yes there is tv revenue yes there are crowds but it's not self-sufficient so the only way they survive is the owners pile the money in so if you're piling the money in then you feel that you have a right to well, be very involved in the football side of it. Um, and as a coach coming out here, I think you have to accept that. Um, and one of the clubs I was at, or I've been at since I've been in Thailand, um, they wanted to bring in some new players. I said, great, uh, let's sit down and talk about this. Um, and we never had a discussion. Um, and before the transfer window opened, they actually brought in 10 new players. And only one of them did they ask me about. And I said, well, that goalkeeper you're talking about signing isn't better than what we've got. And I want better than what we've got. And two days later, they signed him. So what do, you, what do you do as the head coach in those circumstances? Um, it's, it's, it's a very difficult dynamic, unless you are very fortunate in that the owner of the club maybe has a different approach, a different outlook towards it. Um, and of course, those do exist as well, but they are few and far between, I would suggest. Yeah, I mean, how do you approach that then? As a do you, obviously the reality of it is that you're never going to, you know, suppose see eye to eye and align same values with this person. So, do you approach it in as confrontation, or do you try and work together, or, or you know, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think you, you know, if you if your club is divided somewhere between the owner and the uh, manager, head coach, you've got problems, haven't you? So you have to you have to try to work with them. Um, you know, my, my feeling was, well, they brought in expertise, but then they don't listen to the expertise. Um, and, you know, results depend or the, the, the outcome of games and the results mean I either stay in my job or I don't. So I feel I need more of a say on who's coming in. Um, but, you know, I, I put it down to a learning curve and it's been a great learning curve. Um Will I go back into coaching here in Thailand? Um, I would like to. Yes, I would. I'm not with a club at the moment. Um, I have had some opportunities and I've declined because of, well, how I felt the owner wanted to run the club. Um, so, you know, I, I have to be very patient and see if an opportunity comes along again that is better than than has previously presented itself whether it will or it won't you know i think that's in the uh, the lap of the gods in all honesty 
mentioned earlier about how the game has changed, you know, financially and you played in a much different era of man management. There was cups thrown, hair dryers, all that good stuff that we that we read about. How much have you suited your approach to communicating with players with this new generation? Well, I, I think um, it's a it's a totally different world. I, I always say that, you know, in my time, all the power virtually was with the club. Um, and, you know, players didn't have any any great power to some extent. Um, and now the player is king. Um you know, in, in my day, um, you know, you you could be reprimanded by the coach. You could be, you know, threatened by the coach. You know, players these days don't don't take it. Um, they don't have to take it. So it's a it's a totally different way of managing. Um, and I, I think it's it's for the better to a large extent because you know some of the situations I've seen in changing rooms during my day and. You know, I was pinned up against the wall and threatened by a manager. If I did similar in the second half to the first half, he would knock my head off, you know. And I was I was still a teenager, to be honest with you. So, you know, that's unacceptable. Um, but um, the, the whole game has changed, as has society, of course. And, and, I, and I think rightly so. A lot of people in the coaching community, there's a little bit of resentment towards ex-pros who go straight from, you know, co- get their fast track to licenses and then get big jobs. And a lot of people think that it's an easy road. But then when you look at yours, your pathway, and you see FA Cup finals, World Cup finals, UEFA Cup finals, distinguished career, it shows that it's not as easy as people think to get those jobs. Well, no, it's it's very difficult, to be honest with you. And that's why, you know, I headed out of England with more and more foreign coaches coming into England, less and less opportunities. So I decided to go the other way. Um, And, yeah, I I think you just have to do what you you feel is is right for you. But, yes, I think there have been circumstances where there has been some fast tracking and some favouritism, ex-players, etc., etc. But... Again, if you look at the modern game, you know, there are there are coaches now at big clubs who really don't have a playing pedigree of any great note. You know, Jose Mourinho is one. OK, Arsene Wenger isn't at a club at the moment, but he is another example. Um, and, you know, it's a different skill set. You know, great players don't make, necessarily make great coaches. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's great that, you know, anybody, if they apply themselves can get a long, long way in football. Um, you know, you, you could argue that former Spurs in England, Gary Stevens should have managed or coached, uh, higher clubs, bigger clubs than I have. There's, there's some reasons why maybe I haven't. And, and that is when I first retired from the game, I mentioned earlier that it was a difficult time and I decided to take some time away from football I, or, or still connected to the game, but away from the playing and coaching side of it, um, you know, with my TV and media and radio work and, you know, some business interests as well. And then I went back into the game and it took a long while to get back into the game and the game's moved on a long way and you you kind of forgotten to a large extent um, and then you're very much in the pack so I've been in the pack trying to get myself jobs and stay employed and and do a good job wherever I can and you know it's taken me from you know part of the academy at Charlton Athletic to my own football coaching business to assistant head coach at Gabala in Azerbaijan to assistant manager at Sligo Rovers in Ireland to head coach of Army United in Thailand and then head coach at Port FC in Thailand. And the next one, I don't know at the moment. Another one of your quotes, you you said, it's not an easy business. You have to be creative. You have to be bold. You have to be brave. I love that. Do you think that it's becoming harder for coaches to actually be that as everyone seems to cling to the comfort of survival or just passing coaching exams? We're in danger of becoming the same in a certain way 
Well, yes, I, I think so. You know, if, if if everybody does the same coaching course, then, you know, there's a huge amount that goes into people that is exactly the same. So I'm, I'm saying that, um, yes, you have to use that. Yes, you have to take it on board. Yes, there's, you know, some principles there. But actually, there's there's more than one way to be successful. Um, and... Yeah, I think I think you have to be very much yourself because you know if you don't totally believe in doing it how you know you're expected to do it, I don't think you're going to be successful. So you might as well do it how you think and believe you should because I think you have a greater chance of being successful that way. And and maybe it's very easy for me now because um, you know the stage I'm at in my life, I'm I'm very comfortable with myself. Um, and you know, if I get rejected, that's not a problem to me because actually that door shuts and I believe another one will open. It's as simple as that. Whereas maybe younger coaches, newer coaches, um, people who haven't got to the stage themselves that I've got to, and I, that is with, you know, might, might just my beliefs and, and, and how I view life, to be honest with you, um, then, then maybe it's difficult for them. Um, but, you know, I know this sounds a little bit flippant, but I couldn't give a damn anymore. I really couldn't. You know, I want to work with people. I want to be happy. I want to enjoy myself. And actually, if it doesn't work for them, well, no problems, because it'll work for me with other people elsewhere. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and I love that. It brings us on nicely here to, you know, you're big on the social media side, the mental side of the game and promoting mental health on your social media. Was this something that you've always been aware of that you kind of said that you've, you've, now, you've now got to the stage, but was this, this viewpoint of your life, is it something that's come in recent years or was it something that you've always kind of always had? No, no, it's, it's come in recent years. There's no two ways about that. Um, I've, uh, I've worked with a, a life coach now for four or five years, which has been a huge help to me and, and has developed me beyond belief, in my opinion. Um, I wished I was the way I am now 20, 30 years ago, without doubt. Um, I wished I was like this as a player. I think I would have been a better player. Um, you know, I wanted so bad to do so well that it actually inhibited me. Um, it held me back. It restricted me. Um, and yeah, the mental health is, is huge. You know, we all have a mental state. Um, and the more you can spend the time or your time in a healthy mental state, the better. There are ways to do it, um, you know, whether it's meditation um, whether it's actually just controlling your thoughts. Um, you know, so many people just, just have negative thought after negative thought after negative thought. Um, and it gets you nowhere. It really gets you nowhere. You know, you need to be positive. You need to trust in yourself. You need to trust in other people. Um, you know, we don't have enough time here to, to go into all of it. But, you know, I would highly recommend any coach to... Um, you know, do some do some courses, work with a life coach, study some other aspects of well-being and mental health and how you can get there, um, because it goes a long, long way to achieving for yourself and also achieving for your squad and players. Yeah, people think that when people look at, especially social media, when people see someone like yourself and what you post and like in one of your, I think it's your mental health day, you had you had a, a little bit of a cappuccino on your nose and you're saying like, you know, laugh at yourself. And, and people people think that that's, but people think that you're, you know, ah, he, he's just a positive person, but I'm not like that. But it's great to hear that you actually have to work at that there. Well, yeah, well yes, you do, totally. So, so in a nutshell, this is my belief. When we are born, we are pure. We have no, no, we've not been programmed at all. Um, and, and as we start to grow and get older and, and go through our life from 
a, a real baby through to kid, to school, to teenager, to young adult, etc. We just all get bombarded with negativity. Absolutely. Um, and I, I don't know whether my mum will be too happy about this, but let me give you an example. So I phone my mother up and say, hi, mum, how are you? She says, oh, not bad, but it's been raining. It's so miserable. And I said, well, hang on a second, mum. When I phoned you up three months ago, I phoned once a week or something, but, but when I phoned you up three months ago and it was hot and sunny and I said, how are you? You said, okay, but it's so hot and there's no rain and the grass is all going bald. So, you know, whether it's hot or whether it's cold, mum, you're moaning. So, you know, that can't be good for anybody, in my opinion. So for me, it's hot and sunny. Fantastic. Let's enjoy the warmth. It's, it's cold and wet. Brilliant. Let's wrap up and enjoy the elements. So you have a choice. You can go one way or the other. You can you can see the positive side of anything or you can see the negative side of anything. You know, doesn't matter how thinly you cut that piece of bread. It's got two sides and you make the choice what side you want to be on. And finally, in my life, I've got to a stage where, in my opinion, I'm on the the right side. I'm on the good side. I'm on the happy side. I'm on the positive side. And, you know, it, it works for me. Brilliant. We seem to look back on the old days with little rose tinted glasses with, you know, even I do it myself, you know, I'll stick on 80s football for an hour and I'll watch it and reminisce about that was that was what got me the bug. Did, did the negativity that exists in football today, did you feel that in the 80s? Um, I, I didn't feel it because it was what I was used to, to be honest with you. And when you look back to the, you know, the 70s and the 80s and, you know, crowd violence and, and everything, you know, it was a shocking time. It really was a shocking time. But kind of that's how it how it was, I suppose. Um, yeah. Um, I, you know, I... I, I had, a, in my opinion, I, I played in, in a great era because there were lots of things that we didn't have to contend with then that you do now. Um, you know, social media, for example, and, you know, people prying into your life and everything. You know, that didn't used to, to carry on. So, again, it's shifted and it's changed. It's just a, another strain, I suppose, another type of, um, I don't know, interference with your life if you have a bit of a, a profile as a as an anybody but as a professional footballer for sure when you look at the read autobiographies there was such like someone like Paul Merson or those players that played in London there was such a freedom and enjoyment that seems to life that you wonder whether the players today although they make you know they make vast sums of money you wonder where they enjoy the life the way that a footballer did in that era well you know I've I've um said to a few people on a few occasions I'm not sure I would want to be playing in the current era um, you know it, it's it's just you know as, as a professional footballer at any Premier League club in England for example um, you know you're, you're just well you can't lead a normal life it's as simple as that you cannot lead in what I would call a, a reasonably normal life whereas as a player myself you know, I could, I went out, I socialised, I ate in a restaurant. You know, if, if maybe I had a, a glass of beer in a restaurant on a Wednesday night, you know, it didn't pop up on social media that I was paralytic drunk hmm. because there was no social media. And of course, I wasn't. But that's the type of thing that happens now with players. Last couple for you. What's your, what's your advice for young coaches who are either thinking about going abroad or just wanting to work at the at the top level of the game? Well, for me, it's about doing the hours. Um, it's about, yes, getting your qualifications because you, know, you can't go far without your qualifications these days, be that right or wrong, but you can't. Um, but expose yourself to different levels of coaching. Go and watch different coaches. Go and talk to different coaches. Um, I think most most coaches would be really surprised 
how if they contacted somebody who they thought was kind of out of touch, um, so if, if, they, if they contacted me, for example, Gary, I know you're a former Spurs and England international and you must be really busy, but could you help me? Well, the answer is yes, basically. You know, you contacted me. Here we are having a chat. So I, I don't think I'm unique in this particular way. Um, so go and hook into other people, people who've been there, seen it, done it, had the experience because they are just a wealth of information um, that will be of great value. Best player played with? <laughs> Josh, I, th I think it's such a tough question because, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough at, at Brighton and Spurs and with England to, to play alongside some, some truly great players. Um, and how, how do you compare a goalkeeper with a centre-forward, a you know, a fullback with a midfield player or, you know, it, it's very difficult. Um, so, you know, while I was at Spurs, I played alongside Ozzy Ardiles, who won the World Cup for Argentina in 78. You know, what a football brain he had. You know, probably as a computer, his brain worked faster than any other football brains. No two ways about it. You know, Glenn Hoddle, who I always say that, Glenn Hoddle on the pitch where it's buzzing around in front of you, you know, he had the view as if he was sat in the back tier of the West Stand with that bird's eye view. He could see the space, he could see the pass, he could see the movement. Um, and also he could deliver it. So, you know, there's two, for example. You know, Gazza was an absolute genius. Flawed, yes, but an absolute genius. You know, Chrissy Waddle was a, a a top, top player. You know, I played in front of two goalkeepers, one at Spurs, Ray Clements, and one with England, Peter Shilton. You know, how, how can you distinguish between the pair of them, for example? So I think I, think I can't give you an answer. I, I played with and alongside some of the greatest of that era. Mm. And probably the same answer then for the, the best played against. Well, well I, I guess to a large extent, yeah. Um, although, um, you know, I played against Johan Cruyff when the year that Spurs got to the UEFA Cup final and we won the UEFA Cup final in 84, we, we played Feyenoord and Johan Cruyff at the back end of his career was playing for Feyenoord at the time. Um, and he was, you know, one of my heroes, you know, total football, Dutch. Um, so, you know, he certainly right up there. Definitely. No two ways about it. Um, but again, I go back and, you know, I played against the young Enzo Schifo mm. when we played Anderlecht for Spurs. You know, what a, you know, he was still very young at the time, but what a player he turned out to be as well. So um, just too many to, to, to pick, to be honest with you. Too many. Guy, thanks so much. This has been fantastic and really appreciate uh, you coming on. And, and also then, you know, special thanks to, to how accessible you are and the message that you that you promote on your social media. It's, it's fantastic, and I know it impacts a lot of people in the right way around the world. Well, good. That's fantastic to hear. I've enjoyed it, and hopefully if I can positively affect one person, it's a, a bonus, and any more than that I'm delighted with. So I guess that leaves me with the opportunity to tell everybody that my Twitter account is at UK. And uh, hopefully uh, more people can follow me on that. That would be fantastic. Thanks so much to Gary for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. The big takeaway for me is just that last piece there when he's talking about the mental approach and the outlook on coaching and in life in general. I think that there's been major strides made over the past 10 years. I've witnessed and experienced coaches having more knowledge, more awareness about Psychology, basic sports psychology and you know getting a little bit more out of their players and connecting and motivating and supporting but I think as much as there's been a growth in that area I think th there needs to be a growth in working on your own psychology and you know getting your head right and it's not it's not people that are born with it like I'm convinced like as Gary said there are people that it takes work and 
you know does it matter i believe it does like i believe that you should be putting as much work into the psychology area of yourself as you do into learning about the new tactics and learn about reading about coaches i believe you should be finding out a little bit more about yourself because first of all it greatly impacts your ability to communicate if you cannot be authentic and you cannot be yourself then players are not going to pay a blind bit of attention no matter how good your ideas are so you won't get the buy-in and if you don't get the buy-in you won't get the impact if you don't make the impact you won't get to do whatever you want to do with your players and then second of all which and i think this is the big key for me if it impacts your energy it'll impact your, your longevity of how long you can coach and if you're not putting more into yourself and putting more into that energy then you're going to get less and less out and eventually that energy will fizzle and eventually you'll have to step away from coaching or step away from the game and I think we should be looking a little bit more in that there and how we can manage ourselves how we can keep ourselves in a better frame of mind I'm not one to be talking about spending less time on social media but I think I'm in a position where I can say that we do have to be careful of two things probably how we consume information and what we put back into that information and I would advise and challenge and recommend that coaches are very very careful how they're talking online how they're taking on information online who they're following online um, and it's not to say go out and follow every motivational speaker because thinking that the world is perfect place uh, will probably do just as much damage as following negativity but you know keeping a realistic view of what the game is and everyone's struggling everyone's facing the challenges and if you can connect with people who you can relate to and you can communicate with that might be able to gain you a little bit of perspective and help you through stages of the game that we've all faced we all face the adversity that players face they face injuries they face defeats we face insecurity we face defeats so i think that's important and i think gary like i thanked him at the end and i i I think he's doing a great job of promoting that on his social media and I think coaches hopefully will get there as well. Hopefully we'll, we'll stop painting this beautiful, perfect picture of what coaching is and maybe get into the reality that it can be a very, very difficult place and you have to work through those challenges. But aligning yourself with the right people and with the right mindset will get you through it a lot quicker and be a lot more productive in the long term. So. Let me know what you think about that there for sure. I'd love to know your thoughts on what, what Gary was saying. And if you have any opinions on that, please, by all means, he give, he give out his social media information and I would advise you to connect with him. And always appreciate you listening and would love to know your thoughts at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. Thanks so much as always. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions and resources head on over to coach kernine on facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com